One of the missionaries put it this way, going to Hawaii was not walking to heaven in golden slippers. Hello and welcome to Saints. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. In today's episode, we will be talking about chapter nine as the spirit dictates. Today, we're very excited to have on the show Chad Orton, who is a curator with the Historic Sites Division in the Church History Department. So welcome, Chad. Yeah, tell us what you do and introduce yourself to our listeners. All right. Um, as noted, I'm a curator with the Historic Sites Division. Recently, the Historic Sites Division, the Church History Department, took over the running of all of the church history sites from the missionary department. And part of my responsibility is we're looking at the messages that are being sent there to make sure that they are accurate and that hopefully we can improve the visitor experience for those who are visiting the sites. That's a short overview of what I do. Great. Well, we're excited you're here with us. So today in Chapter 9, we open up in 1849, and this is in General Conference in October. So the saints have been here It's been about two years since they arrived, and they actually had a good crop this year, so it seems like they're surviving and almost thriving. So we read in the book that they're going from settlement to survival. Now they have that down, and then there's this great push for missionary work. So, Chad, can you tell us about this plan for missionary work? What did it entail, and where were the missionaries sent, and who were these missionaries? Yeah, as as noted, you know, they they had to get it things settled here in the the valley before they could afford to send men off into various locations. Most of the places where missionaries went, they were to countries where they knew the language, English-speaking countries, where a lot of these were from. They had joined the church, and they were going back to those places. They started going out throughout the U.S. In 1852, which is jumping a little bit ahead, they sent 100 men out as missionaries, the largest number in years and they went throughout the world. They were going to places like Siam, but they were there to work with the English-speaking individuals. One of the different missions that turned up during this time was George Q. Cannon and the mission to Hawaii. He was sent there because they thought it was an English-speaking country, only to discover once they get there that they spoke Hawaiian, or there are very few English speakers. So it's one of the more fascinating stories in the history of the church. It's one that people really don't know. In some ways, it's a typical mission. In some ways, it's, it's very unique. For our listeners, Chad has actually written a book about George Q. Cannon and his mission, You can learn about this if you go to churchhistorianspress.org and you click on George Q. Cannon, you'll see a publications link and you'll find the book that Chad worked on as well as a book about the gold mission. And you can read all of President Cannon, who became President Cannon. You can read his entire two and a half million word journal you know, if you've got the time, go go for it. It's awesome. It's actually a very fascinating journal. Chad, let's go back for a minute. How does George end up in Hawaii? Let's start with his gold mission. What is a gold mission? You know, today, we're, for those in the United States are very familiar in other countries, they have a national currency. There was no such thing as a national currency at this time. You had to come up with your own currency. And the thought was that they needed money, they needed to create coinage, And so there were individuals who were called to go to the gold fields. This is 1849. Word of the gold discovery had just been reached across the country. And there, mine gold, 
and send it back to Utah so that they could have a local currency. There were a number of individuals who were called there, one of whom was George Buchanan. He would say later the last place in the world he wanted to go was the gold fields. He couldn't think of anything worse. And was, why was that? There are a lot of reasons. He was a printer. Books were things that interested him more than going out and doing hard physical labor. Uh, like so many of the individuals, they were just not used to it. You know, it was a camping experience. You're out in the woods, the back country of California. Uh, you're living in tents, not something that most people would relish you know, at the time, particularly. Right. He'd come from England where he had never had those experiences. Food would be difficult to come by. There were a lot of challenges there. And I think one of the also main reasons is that he had a girl. You know, he's 22 years old. Elizabeth Hoagland. Elizabeth Hoagland. He's dating her. Family tradition has it, and he doesn't mention it at the time, but it's told later that as they talked about it, he said, well, be grateful I'm going to on a gold mission because I'll only be gone for a year. If I'd gone on a proselyting mission, it would be three years. The reality is that Cannon ended up being gone from home for about five years. That one year, you know, at least the family believe was one year gold mission turns into a five-year proselyting mission. How does the gold mission go? Is it successful? Do they find gold? No. Like most gold miners, they literally fail to find gold, at least for a period of time. They leave in October to go to the gold fields, October 49. There are times when individuals, you know, including Cannon, may have lost their lives. The road hadn't been developed, so they were having some experiences. There were members of their group who broke away from them, went a different route, died, gave wow. Death Valley its name. It's the beginning of exploration in California. Not a lot is developed. They end up in the gold fields up around the Sacramento area and on a place called the American River. This is after about a year. And they have had no success. One of the missionaries says our outlay has overreached our income. Mm. What is frequently the case at the time is these gold miners would create diversion dams where they would take a river, divert the water from the bed, and then mine the bottom of the, the river. And they had tried several of these diversion dams, and they finally ended up on the uh, middle fork of the American River. And they had finally gotten their diversion dam so that they could try to mine the bed when a huge rainstorm comes and it destroys all of the dams along the river, including the missionaries. So it's like we've spent a year, we have nothing to show for it, and now there's no hope. Well, against this background, Charles C. Rich shows up, and he calls the missionaries to go to Hawaii. Now, why Hawaii? I mean, today we think the most expensive place you could go would be Hawaii. Absolutely. It's paradise. It's so wonderful. What was it like for them? One of the missionaries put it this way, going to Hawaii was not walking to heaven in golden slippers. <laughs> it was a very third world country. It was its own country at the time. It was really inexpensive to live as it was in, you know, in other places in Wouldn't the Pacific. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> oh, yeah. Joseph Smith had originally called missionaries to Hawaii in the 1840s from Nauvoo. They only made it far as French Polynesia, which they stopped and stayed there. So Joseph Smith had believed that these were descendants of Israel, but they also believed that they could live there just as cheap. 
Now, this is in September 1850. They've been for a year. It will soon start snowing. It will soon start raining. They will soon have to leave the gold fields. And what do they do? You go into the towns and all there is for you is gambling, drinking. It's just not a good experience. I thought, well, we can send you to Hawaii and you can serve a mission during the winter and come on back. Right. And that was a thought. As Henry Bigler, one of those who went with Cannon, said, it would be like killing two birds with one stone. We could live there cheaper than we could in the cities, which I think ended up being true. And we could also do some proselyting. Were their expectations met as far as proselyting goes? Yes, but not at first. You know, there's some lessons I think that we can learn nowadays. You know, just going back, when they get to Hawaii, they discover that Hawaiians live in Hawaii. There are very few English-speaking individuals. That's who they thought that they were proselyting. A lot of on. Protestant missionaries, really. There were Protestant missionaries. There was a battle for converts, let's just put it that way, among these individuals. And so that was part of the opposition that they faced. But, you know, those whites tended to be part of this Protestant congregations. Hawaii in 1820 had become a Christian nation. And most of those individuals were part of the Congregationalist tradition, or they were Catholic. And so the Mormons came in, and they were a threat to what was going on there. But initially, they thought, we are here to proselyte among the whites. They call a meeting, nobody comes. And what do you do in that situation? You've been called on this mission, and it's not what you expect. It must have been terribly discouraging. It was very discouraging. Cannon talks about the frustrations he had as far as going out and thinking, here I am by myself. You know, nowadays everybody goes, Hawaii, that's great. His mind was in Utah. That's where he wanted to go. He wanted to go east, not west. They didn't know the language. They didn't know how they were going to survive. Before we left, we were told, well, you're going to go there for the winter. But they also said, stay and, and go as the Spirit dictates. And that's one of the things that Cannon felt very strongly, the Spirit telling him. If you will stay here, you will do a good work. But it took him months to learn the Hawaiian language. Let's talk about that just for one second. So it talks in the book about his experience and struggle with the language. His first missionary speech is a total bomb, yeah. which gives me a lot of hope. And I think it should yeah. give a lot of people hope because he ends up being one of the great communicators oh. of the church, an incredible orator and a wonderful writer. And his first try was a total failure. Oh, yeah. It and started it, out good. And then it just, he said yeah. by the end, he just was kind of mumbling and his mind went blank. <laughs> it, it went bl and see, and, it, and they'd had to preach before this time. And before he spoke, one of the missionaries notes that he spoke in this meeting. Oh, well, Cannon writes that this missionary spoke in the meeting. The other missionary writes in his journal, well, they told me since I was the oldest, I had to speak. So Cannon was absolutely afraid of speaking. He has a line in his journal that is so wonderful. It's something to the effect that prior to this meeting, he said, no prisoner under sentence of death dreaded the approach of the hour more than I did <laughs> <laughs> of, of that meeting. <laughs> and he writes to his companions about how nervous he was. Of course, you know, at this time, they're off by themselves. They don't always travel two by two. So, Tell us again about the experience learning the language. One of the things I found kind of interesting is in Saints Volume 1 and in Volume 2 as well, we learn about experiences that are described as speaking in tongues. And it's a speaking of an unknown language followed by an interpretation of that speech. But in this case, George Q is studying like crazy, 
And then it sort of, all of a sudden, it just clicks. And he describes that as the gift of tongues. I've got the gift of tongues. And he does, and he did. And it, we see it nowadays somewhat the same effect with missionaries. I have a son who's serving a Spanish-speaking mission. And I could tell you almost the moment he had the gift of tongues because all of a sudden when he called home, he struggled to speak to us. English was now his second language. English was his second language. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's amazing if you stop and think about this. We can learn to go on missions and speak language in that quick. It's, it's almost unheard of. But Cannon did have a particular gift. His companions struggled. They did not have that same gift. Sometimes he would get frustrated that they'd say, George, you need to come and speak to this congregation because we can't. On one hand, he's frustrated. On the other hand, he has an admiration that they are there putting up with this even though they did not have that same gift. You know, you talked about what it was like. You know, Hawaii is great, and part of what makes it great now is air conditioning because <laughs> <laughs> it's always hot. But these missionaries are dressed in suits, and they're having to go from place to place in these heavy wool suits and they, you know, muddy roads. And so that was part of Ken's frustration is I'm having to go through all of this to, to come preach the, you know, the gospel here. This is getting a little bit ahead in the book, but I wonder for our listeners, if you can tell us, were they successful? What kind of success did the missionaries have with the Hawaiian people? Eventually in the three and a half years that he was there in Hawaii, they ended up baptizing about 4,000 individuals. Wow. And when they first started, there was a belief that they wouldn't baptize anyone. 4,000 individuals, about 5% of the population. And if they said if it wasn't for the opposition, they could have, have done more. Many of the church members today in Hawaii are descendants of these individuals. But Cannon, when he got there, part of what he discovered was that these are individuals of great faith. They had a spiritual side to them that he did not necessarily always find among the whites in Utah or that he had known in Nauvoo or England. One of my favorite stories is that prior to the first conference that they were holding there, it appeared like it was going to rain. And the missionaries had been praying that it wouldn't rain. And so finally they decided that they needed to move the conference indoors. And one of Cannon's leading converts, the fellow named Jonathan Napella, shows up and he watches him moving the stuff indoors and says, you know, basically, what are you doing? And he said, well, it's going to rain. And he said, well, you prayed that it wouldn't rain. That certainly doesn't show a lot of faith. Right. You know, where, where's your faith on this? And Cannon talks about how he felt chastised. And at that point, there was no way that they were going to move it indoors, but uh, they held it outdoors and it didn't rain. But so he found people of great faith. He found in some ways uh, people prepared at that time to receive the gospel. There were those who had come to let Cannon know that they had seen him in vision, bringing the gospel to them. And he had a book in his hand. They weren't quite sure what it was. And of course, that book is the Book of Mormon. It was truly an amazing experience that these individuals were able to have such great success. And, and in some ways, it's truly the first great success as a foreign-speaking mission. Right. One of the lessons I learned from Canon is it was a great success, this mission, but it almost never happened. There were many, many points along the way where the mission didn't happen. 
And I think there's some lessons there for us today. I mentioned earlier that when they're given the call, their diversion dam had been destroyed. The missionaries, everybody else leaves the river, the missionaries give it one last try, and at which point they strike gold. They, for two weeks, they bring in a lot of gold at that time. And then it stops, like so many claims do. At the time, one of the missionaries wrote in his diary, oh, the gold has quit, and it's a shame. With a life's worth of experience, when he recopied that diary, he adds this line, well, it was probably good or else our eyes would have been so full of gold that we never could have seen clearly. But they had enough gold now to pay their way to Hawaii, to buy clothes to look like a minister, to obtain all the things that they need to get them there, and also send it back so that they can fulfill their gold mission responsibilities. They finally have enough money to book passage on a vessel. And the day that they get on the vessel, a huge storm hits in the San Francisco Bay. And they are stuck in the bay for several days as the ship is just being tossed around. The wind is blowing roofs off of buildings. And in the midst of this, Cannon has a dream in which he and the other Hawaii-bound missionaries are trying to raise the anchor on this vessel, and it's stuck in the mud, and they can't. And in the midst of this dream, he looks up, and there's Joseph Smith walking past them to the front of the vessel. And so he leaves with what the missionaries are doing, and he goes forward to where Joseph Smith is, and Joseph Smith kneels down and prays that the vessel might be freed. At that point, said it was like one or two of the missionaries, where there had been 10 pulling before, one or the two, easily pull up the anchor. And Cannon says to Joseph, I wish I had that much faith. And he said, well, you are entitled to it. You can have that experience. So we see when Cannon gets to San Francisco, people are saying, well, we need to go to Utah, but we don't have money. And Cannon says, well, our way to Hawaii looked dark till the last moment, and the Lord opened it. Don't lose faith. So you see him starting to learn these lessons that will carry him into Hawaii. But when the vessel starts leaving San Francisco, finally there's a break in the storm. And they start going out of the harbor, and the storm picks up again. And it appears that the missionaries, the vessel is going to crash among the rocks, and they lose their tiller. They have no way to steer the vessel. And so that entire night... Cannon spends in the dark. I'm sure he prayed the entire night. I'd like to read what he told the later congregation. The impression it made upon my mind has been a lasting one. I would like to impress this upon the minds of the congregation if they choose to take it. Great is the power of prayer when properly offered to the Lord. Whatever success I've had upon my missions have been due to faith and prayer. I have remembered this always. I have endeavored to exercise faith in God through prayer, which has been heard by the Almighty. My brothers and sisters, remember this lesson. Cultivate the Spirit of God. Keep it with you. Remember always there is power in prayer greater than anything man can do. There is no power in monarchs. There is no power in armies. There is no power in legislation nor in anybody, nor anything else upon the earth that equals the power of God in prayer. That's one of the things that's so awesome about Cannon and his journals is he has an amazing way of expressing himself and expressing the experiences that he's had that really 
connect with us even today, even this, you know, 150 years later. So, Chad, will you tell us one of your favorite stories from George Q. Cannon's experiences in Hawaii? One of the stories that impresses me with his exercising of faith is that he needed a horse to go to a meeting. The distance was long, hot. You know, there are a lot of reasons why he wanted to ride. And he couldn't catch this horse. And he is chasing it around, and all of a sudden it dawns on him, why am I doing this? If I'm going to go to this meeting, the Lord will help me with this horse. So he kneels down and says, basically, I need to go to this meeting, and I need this horse. So, Heavenly Father, can you help me? And he said, no sooner had he got up that the horse stopped, and he walked over, got on it, and rode to the meeting. I, I think sometimes we don't always exercise the faith that we're entitled to. And that's one of the great lessons about canon. It's an amazing story. So before we finish today with this episode, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the Perpetual Immigrating Fund. What is this? What's the idea? And did it work? One of the things that I greatly admire about Brigham Young was that he was an innovator. He was never satisfied with how things were. Just because things were working didn't mean that we couldn't find a better way of doing things. One of those was gathering the saints to Utah. He looked at many different ways. Are, are there better ways of doing things? And one of the things, it was very expensive for individuals to come up with money to gather to Utah. They had been commanded to gather, but up front, they did not have the money. It would take them years to gather that money. And so Brigham implemented the Perpetual Immigrating Fund. The idea behind it is that individuals would be advanced money to pay for their passage to Utah. Once in Utah, they would repay that debt, at which point they would have enough money to advance it to other people, and this would go on in perpetuity, the idea behind it. So you say the idea behind it. Did it actually work? It did as far as getting a number of individuals to Utah. I'm not exactly sure, but there were thousands who benefited from the Perpetual Immigrating Fund. There were some problems. One, that there were those who, once they got to Utah, chose not to pay. There were also those who were willing to pay, but sometimes it took a long time to get enough money to pay that back. And so while they're able to get thousands here, there was always a need to put more money into it. Brigham's first home in the Valley, he sold, and the money went to the Perpetual Immigrating Fund. There was always money being put in. There was always a greater need than there were resources. So, yes, it did work. It got the saints here. It wasn't perfect. In the year of Jubilee, the church forgave a large debt of those who would not pay back their perpetual immigrating fund expenses. I had an ancestor who came using PEF funds. I know of one because he was a handcart pioneer, and that's the reason that they traveled by handcart was that they were using PEF money while those who had wagons tended to pay on, on their own. It wasn't every Latter-day Saint who used it, but there was a a goodly number who used the PEF. Of course, today, that same principle, we see it being in place with the Perpetual Education Fund. That is where the idea, uh, they borrowed it today, and we're helping individuals get education so that they then pay back that money. So in this chapter, we've talked a lot about missionary work and a lot about getting people together to Utah in these early years. And there's one other missionary that I just want to talk about before we conclude, and that's Louisa Pratt. It wasn't uncommon, it seems, 
that wives or children would be called with their husbands to their missions. So Louisa is actually called and set apart by Brigham Young. Is this the first time that that's happened for a woman going on a mission? It's the first time we know that someone was set apart as a missionary. We don't know that there weren't other cases, and I think there were, where wives accompanied their husband, but she is the first. The other thing about Louisa, so her husband, Addison, is in Tuboy for a mission, and she's just ready to go. I, I mean, I feel like she's very brave and just seems like an adventurous person. And when she gets there, he's in Tahiti in prison. So I just can't imagine <laughs> what she was going through and how she was feeling when she got there. But I just think she's amazing. And we're lucky to be able to follow her story throughout Saints Volume 2. It is. And, and she, hers is an inspiring story. And she did like... Uh, keep a record of her experiences. And she's an amazing, amazing woman. Chad, there's another character in this chapter. He's kind of a nefarious guy in the end. He was the leader of the ship, the Brooklyn, Sam Brannan. And we learn in this chapter that he's disavowed the church. What happened to Sam Brannan? Sam Brannan was the leader of the ship Brooklyn. He actually was the first Latter-day Saint to preach a gospel sermon in Hawaii, the, the ship stopped in Honolulu, and he preached a sermon on his way to San Francisco, or Yerba Buena at that point was what it was called. Once he arrived in California, he's really kind of interesting because the weather's great, it's beautiful. I mean, Sam Brandon's coming from New Jersey. It's This is such a wonderful place. He initially leaves and goes and seeks out Brigham Young. Meets him on the trail. Meets him on the trail, just outside of what is now Farson, Wyoming and tries to convince him that the place for the Latter-day Saints is not in the Great Basin, but is in California. So uh, Brigham Young says, no, we have received revelation. This is where we are to go. Sam Brandon becomes an entrepreneur. There are very few areas that he doesn't have his hand in. He starts a newspaper. He's the one who publicizes the gold discovery. He basically becomes California's first millionaire. He makes this not in the gold fields, but by catering to the gold miners. Eventually, he does leave the church, becomes kind of a scoundrel, is I think a word that is used to describe him. Sadly, he eventually loses all of his money, and after enjoying quite a wealthy lifestyle, he dies a pauper. It's quite a tale, um, (laughs) old Sam Brannan, and interesting to see how the church and our history intersects with Western history and California history and gold discoveries. It's really fascinating to learn these details. We focus oftentimes on our history, but we were shaped by what was happening around us and we also shaped what was happening. Well, Chad, we appreciate you sharing your insights with us today. And we've covered a lot of different topics. And for additional information, you can go to topics pages at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org. And you'll find more information about George Q. Cannon, emigration, the growth of missionary work, the gift of tongues, Hawaii, all the things that we talked about today and much, much more. And you can let us know what you think at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org and send us any questions or comments you may have. And we just thank you for listening and hope you'll join us next time. I'm Shaylin Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thanks for listening.